Success, is it really a secret? I don't think so. Join me as I interview guests from different cultures and backgrounds who have overcome incredible challenges to create the life they live today. Thousand likes, celebrity status, lots of money or big cars, these are things that come and go and do not define true success. So what is it? And most importantly, how do we create it? If you are a child, teen, or adult trying to understand how to achieve this word, then you are not alone and you won't want to miss a single episode of The Secret to Success Isn't So Secret. This is Christy Maggio, and the key is right here. It's not a great secret, so don't just listen. Learn and take action. How are you, Anjanita? I'm good. Oh, my God. So happy to have you here. You have been doing some incredible, incredible things, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about them because we had done a prior interview when I first just met you. So now we're like re-recording it, and I feel like we know each other so much better, and uh, and this is just going to be, the first one was great, but this one's going to be even better. So I just want to welcome you to the show. You truly are inspirational. And I can't wait for the listeners to hear your story because it's one of the stories that I love the most. It's a teachable story. Um, and it's a story of hard work, perseverance, because you came from uh, a difficult beginning, difficult childhood, which I'm going to have you talk about coming out of the foster care system. You made it to Hollywood, through Hollywood, and those stories are incredible as well. And now you are entrepreneur extraordinaire, and it is something that I'm just really excited for people out there to hear, for women out there to hear, young girls out there for me to share your story um, so that they realize, wow, if she could do it, so can I. Let's start in your childhood. And this way, people can really get a full sense of where you came from and how you made it to where you are today. So tell us about that beginning in your childhood. Well, my story really starts when my biological father took me Mm -hmm. from my biological mother, we'll say kidnapped. He kidnapped me and he literally dumped me on the doorstep of his side chick and uh, she became my surrogate mother. So that was sort of how life started. Welcome to the world at about 18 18 months to about two years old. Because remember, I don't have any, um, any memory of this. This is what I've, I've been, I literally received three different versions of the story. Uh-huh. So I had to sort of piece together what I believe happened. <laughs> right. right. Of course. Wow. And the, um, the common thread is that I was about 18 months to two years old when this happened. Wow. And so were you treated all right by your surrogate mom? Like where? Yes. Actually, I have to say that from the time I was two to the time I was well, mm-hmm. my life was fairly normal. Now, when I say fairly normal, this was normal for me. We were living in the right. projects. We mm-hmm. were living off food stamps. 
many days were filled with grilled cheese sandwiches, you know, mm -hmm. from the actual like block cheese that I don't know if they do that anymore. Do they deliver government the big, cheese? Government cheese, like the big block cheese. By the way, I still love grilled cheese sandwiches, but not from government cheese. Grilled cheese sandwiches um, are great. Yes. But but that was my life. And so I mm -hmm. didn't really know. Like I was in the projects. I, you know, didn't have a lot, but it it worked because I will give my step, I'll, I'll call her my, my surrogate stepmother. I give her lots of credit because she tried her best to make mm -hmm. me feel like I was wanted. Right. And I had some, you know, I had a few things that happened when I was a kid that were, were, were luxuries, even though I was living in the projects, but by all means, you know, it, it, it was not, you know, it wasn't glamorous. Okay. What was school like for you? Well, that was the interesting part because when I went to school, I felt that I was different and I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. There was something that I always felt like, why, why do people treat me differently? What's going on? There's something here because they probably knew what I didn't know and people responded to me differently. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I tell people now that are in the system, you know, with children, right? Be careful how you treat them because they can feel if you treat them like they're not wanted or you treat them like they're the bad kid or they're the foster kid or they're, you know, the orphan. Be right. very careful because they can sense that because I sense that in school because sometimes the teachers were really nice and then other times they just they, they were mean. And, and if I did something wrong, they would punish me more than if another kid more, you know, because I think they felt that, oh, well, she's a problem child because, you know, she's a unwanted child or. And know, they whatever. might need feel that they need to be more disciplined with you. Then. Exactly. Right. And I always felt that and never, I didn't understand that until later in life, mm -hmm. but that was the start. That was and how so, I and so then what happened at 12? So basically at 12, my, unfortunately, my, her name was Emma. Emma had a seizure one night and um, she literally, like her body just went into some kind of shock. And, and I, I'll never forget when this happened, she was shaking and her whole body was like trembling from head to toe. And she said, I'm having a seizure. So we had to call 911 and then she was literally you know, wheeled off. And that was the last time I saw her. And through that incident, a series of events occurred that ended up putting me with my biological mother. And that's now, where was your I biological father at this time? Well, my biological father, that was the sort of that, that's, that's like the, the movie version of the story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my biological father um, again, he was never around. He was always, you know, in and out of my life. Uh -huh. And um, his family basically decided that they needed to intervene and try to find my biological mother. And they thought it was time to intervene. 
and locate my biological mother because they, they didn't want to know. They made that decision to no longer carry the lie, I guess. Literally, this is how it happened. I was with my, my uncle, my father's brother, and he said, um, I want to talk to you. And uh, I'm 12 at the time, I was 12. And um, he said, um, I have some news for you. And I said, I know Emma's not my, my mother. And I have no idea how all of a sudden I figured that out. But, you know, in, in, instinctively, I, I guess mm -hmm. I figured it out. And he said, well, I have news for you. On Saturday, you're going to meet your mother. And I thought, what? You're going to meet your wow. mother on Saturday. So I met my mother, my biological mother on Saturday. And then I think um, Sunday, I was on a flight back to California with her. And what was going through your head at this moment? I mean, you're, you're 12, you know, you're now the whole life that you had known up until this point had just completely gotten uprooted. You're told yeah. you have a different mom and a week later, you're not even a week later, you're pretty much on a flight to go and live with this person that you don't even really know or didn't know existed. What was happening in your mind? I, I don't know. I really don't know. When I think about it, I think um, I, I was going through the motion because I've always, I've always had a belief in, in mm -hmm. something bigger. And I was a dreamer back then. That's one of the things that I loved about uh, my life in the projects. Because even though I was, you know, in that poverty set environment, mm -hmm. I still, there was still something in me that, that made me dream. Mm -hmm. And so I carry that. And mm -hmm. when I arrived in California, the first thing that she did was put me in a Catholic school. And that was comfort because I had already been in Catholic school and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go into a new school. And luckily I made some great friends immediately and I was able to start a new life at 12. So things were fine. I was going to school. I had great friends. And then it was evident that we were going to have some problems because we, we were not getting along. And I can say this, you know, both of my parents are no longer on this earth. And so I, I like to say this with respect because I do like, I, I, I want to make sure that I respect them because they did bring me into the world, but I just don't think she was fit to be a mother. Mm -hmm. And she didn't act like a mother because I had been with a woman who was not my biological mother. And that woman made sacrifices for me. That woman never, you know, once told me that I wasn't her child. That woman you know, she did amazing things. She dealt with, you know, a man dumping a kid off on her doorstep. I mean, she, she was the embodiment of unconditional love. And then when I was with my biological mother, I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel that she cared. I didn't feel that she wanted me around. And that's why I went to school one day and um, the police showed up and said, we're taking you to the shelter because your mother's been per, per, uh, reported for child abuse. Was she physically, it was, was it physical abuse? It was more, I think, um, 
emotional. There were some things that she was doing that I still don't know to this day who reported her. But there were things that other people saw that they didn't think it was, they were right, you know, and they just picked up the phone one day, called child welfare services and said, we have a situation. They investigated the situation and then they came to school and they picked me up, put me in a police car and, uh, you know, drove me to the San Jose or Santa Clara County was in San Jose, California, Santa Clara County Children's Shelter. And, and that's sort of how that, that the next stage of my life began. What was, what was that like? I mean, cause I'm imagining that, I'm, I mean, I'm not imagining, I know that that happens to a lot of, of young girls today. You know, it's, it's important that you are taken out of that, that situation. However, I can't even imagine what it's like to take that ride to in a police car to go to a shelter with a group of girls who you that you don't know who are probably in survival mode at that point everybody is and then uh you walk in and you're like what is going to happen to me what what was going through your head? Well, I mean, I can, I can remember this like vividly, like it was yesterday. Huh? And I remember walking in and, uh, you know, they, they register you or whatever they do in, right. the, in the office. And then they, you go into a room that looks like camp, mm-hmm. but it's a room filled with beds and a locker. Mm-hmm. And that's where you sleep with the other girls and um you go to school like they have school at the shelter where you know you'll go to school during the day you know go to class I should say right and um during that time when I was in the shelter I was in the shelter for several months and so that was during the shelter I was going through sort of the the child welfare services, the court system. Mm -hmm. I was assigned a social worker or probation officer. I had to go to court. Um, There was a situation where I went to court with my mother, biological mother. And um, at that time, they were trying to decide if I would be returned to the home or I would stay a ward of the state. And I, at the time, this this is really interesting. I didn't want to go back. You didn't want and to I, I know that that's, when I tell, you know, the story, people go, why wouldn't you want to go back to your mom when you have, you know, they were going to send you back to your biological mother, but you were living in a shelter and you were about to go into the foster care system. You know, why would you want that? Now, remember by that time I was 14, 15. Mm-hmm. So I had already, I started to have sort of my, you know, somewhat of my, my existence, right? My, my self image, you know, sort of forming like the woman I'm going to become. So there was just part of me that felt that I don't think that that's the best place for me mm-hmm. in terms of what I want to do with my life. So the probation officer said, no, I want you to go back to your biological mother. I don't want to break up a black home. 
I can't do this. And I said, okay. I told my social worker, I didn't want to go back. So we go to court. And I kid you not, something happened at court. Can't remember what my mother did or didn't do. But they all convened with the judge, the probation officer, the social worker. And the next thing you know, they said, you're, you're going you're gonna to go into a group home and you are going to be in the system until you're 18 years old. And that was that. Done. And you don't know what it was that your, that your mom did specifically? I have no idea because they wanted her to go to counseling. They wanted, um, you know, she had her own meetings with them. They were, they were obviously meeting with me. I had a social worker and, you know, they were meeting with her, but something happened and um, they, they said, okay. Well, and I don't think it's necessarily all that far-fetched for you to have not wanted to go back with your mom because it all, depending on the scenario and the situation and what your mom was doing, which I can imagine. Or not doing. Or not doing, um, um, which, you know, I, I can imagine at, at that point, you, why would you want to, you know, if you wanted to have some sort of a, a respectable future and not put yourself in that situation, if you felt that the foster care system was better than your mom going back to your mom then there's there's a really good reason for that um what was it was a risk it was a risk because you didn't you also didn't I had no idea I had no idea what I was getting myself into 14 15 I had no idea I had no idea I mean that's incredible as a 14 15 year old to have to make that choice like I think about my niece right now and she's 13 and and I you know, making that choice at that point in your life when you're supposed to be a teen going to school. And I mean, but that's the reality for so many children right now. Um, what, what were the kids like in the, in the group home when you were there? What was the school like? Well, that was the interesting part. <clears throat> and this is why I have become an advocate for foster kids, unwanted children, parentless, hashtag parentless Mm -hmm. children, because these kids are amazing. Some of them were molested by their fathers. Some of them were abused by their mothers. Some of them, you know, were in a drug, you know, written household, you know, um, some of them were physically abused. Some of them lost a parent, like, you know, the parent died and, and the, the, next of kin were unable to care for them. I mean, there was so many situations, but they were fairly good girls because obviously I was, you know, on the girl's side, they were good girls. I mean, really good girls. I, I, I mean, now there were some of them that were, that were serial runaways because they had been in the system for so right. long that they were living on the street, they would get arrested. They, when I say arrested, meaning they would, they would pick them up, bring them back to the shelter, and then they'd run away again. Right. So I met a lot of runaways, but, but these were hardcore young girls that were used to living on the street and they were used to, you know, hitchhiking and, and living with different people. I mean, that was their life because they had been in the system for so long that they adapted to that way of living. I, I, I've seen it all, 
you know, when it comes to these children that are put in the system, I mean, I, I've seen it all. That's, that's why when I speak about this, I have a level of conviction because I was there. I'm not just speaking like, oh, this is the new, you know, topic to talk about. And it's so sexy right now. No, this was real. I was there. I was living in the shelter, living in the children's shelter with runaways, with kids that were sexually abused, with kids that were literal girls that would leave and, and not come back. And unfortunately, we were told that ended up in, in human trafficking. I mean, it, we're talking some serious stuff. Serious stuff. Yeah. And, and so looking at it all now, because we know that it's still a serious issue, especially human trafficking um, is a serious issue um and a lot of people think oh that doesn't happen here in the united states well yeah yes it does happen (laughs) very much so like you know you might think oh well in the dominican republic you know that 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 can easily happen well guess what it happens i mean we've seen that a lot and um unfortunately what do you think is lacking or a a step towards a a a better system or solution because I'm not necessarily one to judge a system saying, oh, it doesn't work. But but without trying to make a certain idea as to what is a step that can be taken to kind of help it. Um, What do you feel is something that can be, that can be done better um, within the system to make it safer? Well, I think number one, is society needs to accept that we have, that that these children exist. Right. And not put us in a box Mm -hmm. and label us, (laughs) you you know, with this sort of stigma Mm -hmm. that we're problem children, Mm -hmm. we're unwanted children. There's something wrong with us because, Talking about human trafficking, 60% of children that are sold on the black market are foster kids. Mm -hmm. And people often ask, well, how can this happen? Because these are children that number one, no one wants. Number two, no one is looking for. Right. So it, it could have happened to me. Like I literally could have, you know, when the van drove up, I could have hopped into the van. It was the real scenario for me. Right. And, and, and then they would have said, you know, oh, she ran away. Mm-hmm. Cross her name off the list. She's a runaway next. Exactly. Because imagine how many times these girls, some of the girls that had been repeat runaways and exactly. then they came back. And then all of a sudden, one time they ran away. But this time it wasn't that they ran away and were on their own. They ran away and they ended up getting picked up by the wrong people. And so, yeah. So um, I guess that's uh, awareness is definitely, and, and it's true. Children, the thing is children don't uh, choose this life. No, no. And I, I think that that's one of the key and most important things um, that will end this part with is that you don't get to make the choice and, and people need to stop with the already preconditioned idea and notion that these are bad kids because exactly. they're not every child, just like every adult can, they, you know, they may have done some 
bad or made some bad choices due to their circumstances in the past, but that doesn't mean that they're just bad forever. And, um, and I think that that's really, really key and really the important part in trying to understand the children um, and what they've gone through as opposed to just saying, giving up on them. And exactly. Think- because here's the deal. And, and, and this is the way that society ends up or, or, or the children become a burden. Mm-hmm. Because when you have kids that are aged out of the system, like myself, and you go out in this, into the system and you have zero support, here are your options. Incarceration, mm-hmm. drug abuse, mothers on welfare, sold onto the black market, into you know, human trafficking, homelessness, right. lack of education. So now you become a burden to society. Right. Because when you were a child, they didn't want to deal with you. Right. You were a problem. They just wanted to shuffle you through the system to 18 and dump you on the street. Right. And And that's the missing piece that people don't see. Right. And, and it's true. And, 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 and that's the thing where is if they, cause people nowadays, instead of being proactive, we are a reactive society. So instead of trying yeah. to change that c- c- scenario before it gets to that point, um, people are just like, Oh, let's not worry. It's not, it's okay. It'll, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. And then before you know it, you have uh, chaos on your hand. And so what was it for you? though, because you did not become a statistic or one of the statistics that they say is going to happen to you. You made it and you aged out of the foster care system. You were said, here you go. Have a nice day. Um, you know, thank you for your time, so to speak. That's kind of cold, but you know, I mean, and then, but, and, and you were said, okay. And now you're on your own. How'd you do it? Well, I, I wanted to piggyback on something you said, because this mm-hmm. is sort of my anthem. Mm-hmm. Try living your life without a mother or a father and then talk to me. Right. Because statistically speaking, people like me don't make it. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been homeless. I've been jobless, carless, cashless. Mm-hmm. And I think you figured out by now I've been parentless. Right. And you know, I think right now is a really key point for, for kids, young adults, adolescents out there that are like, that are going through the same thing that you went through and thinking that they can't do it. Like they need to really hone in and listen now because this is the lesson right here. I had a desire to do something with my life Mm -hmm. and I was a dreamer. And I would dream about, you know, the things that I'm doing today. I would dream about. And that is what gave me that level of conviction to get a job. So I started working when I was 15 years old because I knew, okay, I was in a group home. I was in the foster care system. I didn't get, have any money, okay? I knew that I needed to have a job to make money, to buy things for myself. So I already had 
that desire to make something of myself. Mm-hmm. And I put myself in situations where I develop my life skills. I develop my communication skills, sales skills, networking skills, literally out of survival because I mm-hmm. had to survive. I needed a job. I needed a place to live. I needed to buy food to eat. I needed to buy a bus pass so I could actually get on the bus. I mean, like the, the day that the, the, my foster parent said to me, it's time to go. I didn't have a car. You know, I just had some clothes and some toiletries. And I luckily a friend, you know, drove me to someone else's house and I rented a room. And I rented a room in the neighborhood that was close enough so that I could take the bus to work at Macy's. So, so that, that's how I started. And then I had these other dreams and I said, okay, I want to go to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And, um, before Hollywood, I went to San Francisco to pursue modeling and, and, and did some, you know, um, fashion shows and, and got an agent and did, did a little bit of work, but there was a time where I, I just wanted to go to Hollywood Mm -hmm. and I found a way to get to Hollywood. I had less than a thousand dollars to my name and I made it to Hollywood. Slept on the sofa, but um, I made it to Hollywood. Let's talk about that beginning. You get to Hollywood, you're sleeping on someone's sofa. um, And what was, what, what would you do? You get up in the morning and you'd say, okay, I'm going to go and do this audition, this audition. What, what was it then that you started doing to get yourself to that next level? I mean, this, this was sort of that, I guess I got my big break because Mm -hmm. after going through everything, I get to Hollywood and I kid you not, like days, we're talking days. I end up at a casting call. And so I'm at a casting call because I, again, my network was already networking Mm -hmm. and I ended up at a casting for central casting in Burbank, California. I ended up at a casting and they picked me out of like, you know, hundreds of people and they picked me. I said, well, we want you to register for this casting and you can do some extra work. And um, that was how I started just like, and then before you know it, I had, you know, casting calls and people were asking, not people, I say casting agents were calling me and saying, oh, we want you for this bit part in a Warner Brothers TV show. And at the time I was non-union because I didn't have, I didn't have enough credits to, to be a union performer. Mm-hmm. But within about, I want to say 60 to 90 days, I was the Screen Actors Guild member because they'd given me so much work that I qualified to be SAG and I got my Screen Actors Guild card and I was on my way. Now, what was your very first job? What was the very first? Oh gosh. (laughs) Okay, I think if I'm not mistaken, because I did a lot of TV, but I think my sort sort of my, my arrival, like, oh my gosh, this is, this is working. I was a dancer in the movie Boogie Nights. <laughs> oh my God, really? Yes. Now I gotta watch it. Now I gotta watch it again. I mean, I watched and it. <laughs> I, I met 
And this is so funny. I'll never forget this. I, I was, I was hanging out with Marky Mark. So cool. So <laughs> cool. Hanging out with Marky Mark. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh. Okay. I, I think I, I think I got it. I think I did it. You know, um, that was sort of, you know, the, the first thing that I can remember because I, mm -hmm. I was working so much because I literally would get these little parts and sort of um, like the ingenue and um, people were calling me. I mean, I, I auditioned, I'll tell you something funny. I auditioned to be the black girl on Baywatch. And <laughs> like, uh, they were like, okay, we want to put more black girls on Baywatch. And so I was, I was literally, you know, called to go down in San, Santa Monica. Did they make you run on the beach? No, I didn't make it that far. I wasn't I, sure. I, I, went, <laughs> I went to the preliminaries and, um, you know, I, I went to the casting, but I didn't, I didn't make it to, to the part where you had to, I think there's an audition for swimmers because at the time I, I wasn't a swimmer. <laughs> but I said, I'm going to go out for this beach show, even though I'm not an expert swimmer. I'll, I'll figure it out. But I, I literally, I, I did so much. I'll tell you another funny part was I actually was in the commercial, the Reebok commercial with Cuba Gooding Jr. for a very well-known movie called Jerry Maguire. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was dancing with Cuba Gooding Jr. So I just, I had, I had fun. It was, and it was, Talk about, you know, just like a revelation after everything that I had been through. I, I started to have that, um, what at that time, what I call success. Now, Hollywood standards, it wasn't success because <laughs> like, I wasn't you have like. To remember where you came from. And, and, you know, the problem is people want to get here without going here, 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 and here. Exactly. And so exactly. really you are little by little because you were Janet Jackson's body double. Yes. You worked with LL Cool J. You were in the yes. Black Eyed Peas video. Yep. And all of these wonderful, I mean, you were in Homegrown with bon, John Bon Jovi and Billy Bob Thornton. But yep. I want to get to the story that you told me the first time we had this interview, because I want, this is the big one, because like you even said, is the one where not everybody gets to work with Steven Spielberg. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. You were in Amistad. Yes. 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 So yes. tell us about that part because he asked you yes. personally to, to do this. And so take us back to the ship. Back to the ship. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there was, there's actually two scenes. So there was a scene uh, at Universal Studios in Hollywood. So we got the, the inside of the ship, we actually shot on a soundstage. And then the external scenes were shot in Long Beach on a ship. But this particular day, history making scene, it's a history making scene. I haven't seen it in a very long time, but, um, but basically we're on a ship and, um, and we're slaves, you know, we're, we are the slaves. And I remember when the casting agent called me and said, do you want to do this? You're going to have to like go in the buff, you know, like everything, like, like, you know, no, um, like, you know, your hair, like no extensions, like no makeup, 
Like you have to right. go raw and um, you'll, you'll be given an opportunity to speak, but you have to learn this dialect. So then we'll, we'll take you to a voice coach and, 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 you know, train you to speak this dialect. So I go to train, I, they give me the part. I say, yes, I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Cause I thought, okay, this is cool. I'll do it. So I go to the voice coach and um, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the, the dialect. So they said, look, we still want you to do the movie because a lot of people didn't want to do it. Number one. And it was a very heart wrenching scene because we were given the opportunity to either use fake chains or real chains. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's when it became real. Like this is a real, this is not like it's a movie, but this really happened. And I chose fake chains. I still have the chains, actually. I chose fake chains because I just didn't want to, I, I didn't need, I didn't need, need to have real chains. So I chose fake chains. And so we're, we're on the boat, lying down, chained, you know, and Steven Spielberg on set, roll camera, tape, action. I can't remember at the time if it was, um, Jimon, I can't remember if he was, on set at the time, but they were doing, you know, different scenes with other actors. And all of a sudden he said, look, I need you to take some food off the face of another person and I need you to eat it. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> like, and I was in shock. Okay. Because number one, you know, it's Steven Spielberg. Right. Number two, I'm in the buff. I'm not wearing anything. So I'm a little self-conscious. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Um, like, this you're, is crazy. And you're in chains. Yes. And he wants. And he said, imagine if you're on a boat and you haven't had anything to eat and they're throwing food at you. Like, like they're just throwing food out and you haven't had anything to eat. What would you do? And you saw a little bit of food on someone else's face. Wouldn't you just go out and grab it and eat it? And so I take a deep breath and I didn't say anything. And Steven, Bil Steven Spielberg said, did you hear me? And everyone was silent on the set. Oh my God. My heart's beating. I'm like, oh gosh. Yes, yes, yes. I heard you. Yes, yes, yes. And I did it. And if you see the movie, Mr. Spielberg kept my shot in the movie. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Wow. That was it. So yeah, that, that's a big moment in Hollywood. I would say that's probably the, one of the biggest moments because all of that momentum, you know, auditioning for Baywatch and ended up in, in, in the music video and, and on, you know, the TV show when I worked with LL Puja on his TV show and working with uh, Bon Jovi and Billy Bob Thornton, you know, at Homegrown and, you know, like all of that led to that. When did you go from there? <laughs> that you're just like, you know what? I am, I mean, I, you are, you always, I mean, Basically, you're definitely selling yourself the entire time because 
that's what you're doing. In order to get these jobs, you are getting people to buy into who you are. So um, I know from learning from you that your your main things are communication, uh, networking, and which is in social capital, right? Um, I'm sure I'm missing something there, but selling yourself, (laughs) selling yourself, selling, selling, selling. That's the first one selling. Um, and so, so you decided to say, I'm going to be, now I'm going to be an entrepreneur, right? And so where, how, because now you're in big time. Now you have billion dollar Rolodex. You do power networking for women. Um, you do coaching. Um, you know, you get women to that next level. And it's not just women. You just happen to work with women because now, you know, you have men as well. But at the same time, you know, you focus on female empowerment because that's what you have created for yourself. And so tell us about what you're working on now and all of the wonderful things, because I know it's, it's, it's incredible and fantastic. Thank you. Essentially what I've done is I've taken everything that I've learned along the way. And that's what I teach women. So there were four core skills that I learned through my journey, my journey of struggle, my journey of defeat, my journey of poverty. There there were four skills. And number one was selling. You know, I had to learn how to sell myself and I didn't even know it. Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to communicate. You know, I've never gone to college and I work at a very advanced level in business. Mm -hmm. But that's only through self-education and study. Mm -hmm. So communication, networking, and leadership. Mm -hmm. Because I've had to lead people in many situations. We didn't touch on this today, but when I worked in beauty and fashion, I was a leader. And putting together teams for different retail stores and also doing um, beauty shows and fashion shows and things like that. So I have those skills, but they were skills that I learned along the way. Mm -hmm. And I find that today, so many people, you know, go out and say, you know, they're an expert because it's so easy to to say I'm a coach or I'm an expert and it's become quite a commodity. And I tell people that I'm, I'm not perfect, obviously, right? Okay, my imperfections, my idiosyncrasies, you know, I wear that, I own it. But I have mastered these skills along the way through trial and error. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm able to teach women and really help them not only stand in their feminine power, because throughout this whole process, I had to learn to stand in my feminine power, but also increase their financial power Mm -hmm. because that's the piece that a lot of times when you're a feminine woman, you know, society doesn't look at you as someone who 
can go out there and make a lot of money. There's that stereotype. So I want women to feel that it's okay to be a woman and it's okay to work for money mm -hmm. and, and have a real business and, and deal with all of your stuff. And it's okay if you, you've made mistakes and you are flawed and, you know, whatever, get rid of that shame. You know, I have no shame around, you know, people, people will say, oh, well, you know, you've, you've made money and you've lost money and you've done all these things. And, you know, who are you, who am I not to do this? Right. Because what better example than someone who literally fell on her cute, you know, and had That's to, right. had to get up and make something. Mm -hmm. And like I said, my, my theme, try living your life without a mother or a father, and then talk to Angelita Primos. Let that sink right. in. That's for everyone to hear before the judgment, before the stereotypes, before the assumptions. What would you do if right. you didn't have a mother or a father? I don't know what my, I mean, my mom was more uh, a part of my life at that point in time than my dad, but I don't really know what I would have done without the support of my mom. And, um, and to think about how many people do make it without the support of, of either parent. Exactly. And it's, it's not a lot, but you know what though, your, your ability to survive that, your errors, your, your successes, all of that have our experiences that made you who you are today. Nothing was a mistake because without, you know, failure is a learning experience. It's not, it's not failing at all. You know, I don't necessarily, I like, I like to say it's not a setback. It's a set up for something different that's supposed to, to happen to you. And so when you, when you look at it that way, you know, people that like to judge are people that are insecure with themselves. Really? Absolutely. I so, agree. But I wanted to highlight that because I've had to endure a lot to get to this point and to go from, you know, dancing on a beach <laughs> to, you know, hosting conferences for women around the world, you know, it's a stretch. And when I say it's a stretch, not a stretch for me because I'm equipped for the job. My work is ordained by God, but it's a, it's a stretch oftentimes for people to comprehend because mm -hmm. people see, whoa, whoa, like, you right. know. It's not the normal societal image. No. And that's, no. And that's the issue. No, know? definitely because not. People like to put things in, inside the box. And we, you know, it's, it's important to realize that there is no inside the box. There's no outside the box. There is who you are because everybody's different. I want to thank you for tuning in today's episode of the Secret to Success Isn't So Secret podcast. Always remember, if you believe, you will achieve.